Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can have this time together. We are continuing our lessons from the book of Romans. These lessons come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly, the spring quarter of 2021. And today we're using the lesson from March 28th. Our text is Romans chapter 3, looking at verses 21 through 31. The lesson is titled, Benefits of Christ's Death. And Paul is looking at atonement, the atonement made for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's point is, this is the only way for us to be made righteous, to be restored to a right relationship with God. But before we get into this lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians, the one found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In our world today, it's estimated there are at least 4,300 different religions. And this is only counting the mainstream religions and not the different variations. But each one has its way of being made right with God. Now, many of these you've heard of, Christianity and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism, etc. There are religions out there that you've probably never heard of. There's Jediism which is a religion built around Star Wars. There's Presbyterianism. Now, not Presbyterianism, but this church is based on Elvis Presley, Presbyterianism. And there are various churches based around the ideas of aliens and UFOs. So when you get into this, there are a lot of ideas out there about what it takes to be right with God. And we live in a pluralistic society. We have multiple religions. Many people feel that all religions have truth to them, that there is no one right religion. The idea Christianity is my religion because it works for me, but another religion may be for you. It may be your religion. The idea that all religions will eventually lead to God if we are faithful and, and obedient to what we know. Now, this was definitely not Paul's gospel. Paul wanted the Romans to understand there's one way and only one way to achieve righteousness, to be made right with God, and that is through the death of Jesus Christ. Jew, Greek, it doesn't matter. Everyone comes to God only through Christ. And this was not a popular idea in Paul's day. The Roman world was described as an alphabet soup of religions. Every town, every village, every city had its own local deities, and cities would often associate with one of the major gods or goddesses. For example, the Ephesians worshipped Artemis. Over all of this, the Romans insisted that Caesar was a god himself. They demanded that you worship Caesar. Now, the Roman government, they expected tolerance of religion. As long as you were willing to worship Caesar, you could worship any other god that you wanted to. But they wanted everyone to get along. 
Christians were suspected of rebellion because they would refuse to worship Caesar. Religion wasn't a private affair like it is today. Then religion was very much a part of public life. You could not be a good citizen without worshiping the local gods. In fact, it was seen as putting your whole community at risk if you didn't do your part to appease the local gods. And Christians simply wouldn't play along. They insisted their God was the only true God. They wouldn't participate in rituals and feasts and celebrations for other gods. And their neighbors found this to be offensive. In fact, Christians were labeled as haters of the human race. And so we can see that this placed a lot of of emphasis on on allowing religions and allowing other religions their place. And so this is the environment that Paul comes into. And Paul insists there's one way and only one way for man to achieve righteousness. Today, we face that same challenge when we insist that Jesus Christ is the only way to a right relationship with God. Society has no problem with Christians worshiping Jesus as long as everyone else can worship who they want. The problem becomes when we insist that Jesus is the only God. But this is a message that our world desperately needs. Paul's uh, theme in Romans is the concept of atonement, how man can be made at one with God. Now, Scripture is clear. Atonement is possible only through the death and resurrection of Christ. This is what Christ accomplishes on the cross. Because of what he has done, we are reconciled. We are made right with God. How does Christ's death do this? How does atonement work? Well, there is no one official theory. Throughout the history of the church, different people have given different explanations. And even today, there's no agreement on exactly how atonement works. We agree it does work. Scripture clearly teaches that Christ died for us. But when we ask, how does that work? The Bible itself gives diverse responses. And different theologians have chosen to focus on uh, different views of this, the ones that speak to them. And so there have been different theories that have been emphasized. But in one sense, the theory itself is not what's most important. We are saved through what Christ did in his death and resurrection. We are not saved because we believe a specific theory of how this takes place. We are not saved by believing the correct theory of atonement. And it may be that atonement is such a complex thing that it's beyond our capacity to understand. I don't know that we ever will truly understand it. The Bible gives us different ways to think about it. And all of these ways are true. Each way presents a different aspect of atonement. But none of them are really complete in themselves. When we use metaphors and analogies, all of them will inevitably break down if they're pressed too far. Now, in today's scripture, Paul is presenting us with this picture of atonement. And in the third chapter of Romans, Paul uses three different metaphors or word pictures. First, Paul writes, all are justified freely by his grace. Now, justification is a legal concept. The picture is man as an accused criminal 
standing trial before a judge. Now, man's sin has utterly disqualified him. Man is guilty beyond any doubt. But God justifies him. God wipes his record clean and declares him not guilty. Secondly, Paul writes, through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. The concept of redemption deals with God paying a price to buy man back. The picture is of a slave market where sinful man stands enslaved, owned by sin, and God pays the price to buy him back, to set him free. Finally, Paul writes, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood. So this picture is of Christ as the Passover lamb, Christ as the sacrifice for us, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, one difficulty in understanding Paul, he speaks of the cross doing so many different things, and he never bothers to really put them into one unified system. Paul presents this in different ways, knowing that we understand it in different ways. A picture that makes sense to me may not make sense to you. It's important to Paul that his readers understand the significance of what Christ did for them. Paul knows many will find his gospel hard to accept. He writes that Jews find it as blasphemy, offensive. Gentiles see it as simply foolishness. Today, we want to look at four ways in which the language Paul uses here would be shocking to those who hear him. Paul's first shocking revelation, the idea that atonement even exists for Gentiles, that God is concerned enough to provide a way for all men to be right with Him. Before you get into how or where or when the specifics of atonement, just the idea that God bothers to provide atonement for everyone, that in itself is shocking to those who listen to Paul. The Jews knew they enjoyed a relationship with God. God had established the covenant with them. God had given them His law, chosen them as His people. He would be their God and they would be His people. And the Jewish people had always recognized there were righteous Gentiles, but there was never any push on their part to proselytize, to bring Gentiles into this relationship with God. And as far as pagan Gentiles who worshipped idols, who engaged in all kinds of perverse practices, the Jewish thought was, why would God want to be in relationship with them? To the Jewish people, these Gentiles were under God's wrath, and they deserved to be. So, God's wrath against them actually was seen as a demonstration of His justice and His righteousness. Today, we've become so accustomed to the language that God is love, we find it hard to understand the fear, the uncertainty that pagans felt toward their own gods. The Roman and Greek gods were known for their callousness toward humans. They would toy with humans. Humans would be something that they amused themselves with. If you were a Gentile pagan of this time, you never knew exactly where you stood with the gods. The gods were capricious. Sometimes they were pleased. Sometimes they were angry. You never knew when they were going to turn on you or what their mood would be. You never knew exactly what it would take to please them. And so to be in the presence of these gods, to have them focus their attention on you, 
This was terrifying. And now Paul is telling them, you can be assured of being righteous, of being in a right relationship with God. Now, Paul thought that this gospel was supremely important. He devoted his life to it, and it cost him. We read last week in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, Paul describes his life of ministry. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Paul goes on to list specific punishments. Five times received 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods, once pelted with stones, three times shipwrecked. And so Paul is describing a life of suffering, a life of labor. But Paul makes it clear he does not just endure this type of life. He doesn't just suffer through it, see it as doing his duty. Paul values the gospel so highly that he actually says, I'm happy to do this. I'm excited to be an apostle, to be spreading this gospel to the Gentiles. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, This is the gospel that you heard, that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. When Paul writes of this gospel, he makes a second shocking revelation, and that is the idea that God justifies through grace. It's not because of anything that we do. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. Grace is God providing us with what we have never earned or deserved. Paul's message, it's God who justifies us apart from anything that we do, whether we live righteously or not, whether we obey the law or not. This righteousness does not come about through the law or through anything that we do. It is God who justifies For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace. Man fell short of the glory of God. Man fell from what he was created to be. Originally, man was created in the image of God, to bear God's image. Man was God's representative in this created world. Man was the instrument through which God would be present and active in his creation. And so man actually, by being in the image of God, was the way that God's presence was cast into the world. Man reflected God into this world. There's a town in Norway where for half the year they live constantly in shadow. It's in the mountains. They can see the sunlight that's high up on the uh, northern wall of the mountains. But the town itself stays in shadow. The sun is so low on the horizon that it never actually shines into the town. So, during these six months, the sun never gets high enough in the sky for them to actually see it or to feel the heat of its rays. So they decided they would do something about this. They built large rotating mirrors that were high up on the mountains surrounding the town. And these mirrors would catch the sun's low rays and reflect them down into the center of the town. Man is intended to do this same thing for God. Man was intended 
to be created in the image of God to reflect God's glory into this world. But we know what happened. Man sinned. Man tried to usurp God's place to become God. And from that point on, man was no longer reflecting God's image, no longer matching the glory of God. Now, all sin is a preference for something other than God. It's a despising of God's glory. In fact, we are dishonoring God's name. We are actually demeaning God because we are setting something else up in His place. And God's holiness demands that He uphold His own glory. It leaves us guilty of a most serious offense, offending God's holiness. But in justification, our sin is wiped out. In atonement, we are no longer held guilty. Our record is expunged. And justification includes a relational aspect. It's not just that our our sins are gone, but we are restored to a right relationship to God, brought back into full communion with God. And so we are no longer God's enemies. So our justification is much more than just an escape from punishment. It's a transformation of who we are. We are restored to the creation that God intended for us to be. Paul goes on to say something very shocking. All are justified freely by His grace. Now, we've heard this idea of grace so many times we lose the sense of how truly remarkable it is. This justification, this atonement, is a gift from God, something that God does entirely unbased on what we do. Paul's central point, this justification is by grace alone. It's not based on our obedience. It's not based on whether we deserve it or not. It's not based on whether we feel remorseful or regretful not based on whether we turn over a new leaf. We don't have to promise God what we're going to do. Now, the Jewish people had the law for the basis of their relationship with God. As long as they obeyed the law, they were in covenant with God. Now, Paul is saying God justifies regardless of whether the Jews obeyed the law or not. As Gentiles, we don't have the law. But a lot of times we do have the idea that God expects certain things of us before he will forgive. God expects us to promise to turn over a new leaf, to promise to obey in the future. Uh, God at least expects us to feel sorrow, remorse. God welcomes us once we've given up our sin. Uh, We get the idea that there are steps we go through to show God that we are truly uh, worthy of receiving his grace. And Paul says, no, you don't do anything to receive God's grace. God gives it to you freely. So we have, to, we have the idea that there are things we do to find God. And, God, and Paul is saying no. Now, R.C. Sproul writes, the grand paradox is we are saved both by God and from God. In other words, the same God that places us under divine wrath because of our sins against His holiness is the God that gives the grace to get us out from under this judgment. And we don't realize how shocking this would be to those who heard Paul, especially to his Jewish readers. It was actually the wicked judge who let the guilty go free. Proverbs seventeen fifteen reads, 
He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. A righteous judge demanded punishment for the, for the wicked. But now as Paul is telling them, even though we are completely guilty, God declares us not guilty. God acquits us. God lets us off. This seems to violate all that God has promised in the Old Testament. Exodus 23, 7, God promises, I will not acquit the wicked. So can you see why Jews would consider Paul's gospel as a stumbling block, as something offensive, almost blasphemous, profaning the very name of God? If we're honest with ourselves, we often find this offensive as well, that God lets the wicked go scot-free. When Jesus was uh, doing his teaching on earth, he told people a parable, a parable that's kind of shocking to us. This parable is of a landowner who goes out to hire men to work in his vineyard. And he hires men at the beginning of the day and promises them a day's wage. Well, this landowner goes out and hires more people throughout the day. And in fact, he hires some at the very end of the day when there's only an hour left to work. Now, when he comes to pay these men, he pays those with only an hour left to work. He pays them the same wage that he paid those who had worked all day long. And the workers who had worked all day long protest. They say, this is not fair. Why should they receive the same as us? When we've worked hard all day, they've only worked an hour. And so we find this concept that God can take a, an utterly evil person and forgive his sins. We find that to be offensive. Uh, Craig Gross is a pastor who runs a ministry called the Triple X Church. And it's a ministry exclusively to porn stars, those who, who make a living in the pornography industry. In 2006, he made plans to attend a pornography convention in Los Angeles, and he wanted to pass out Bibles. But he wanted these Bibles to specifically have on the front cover, Jesus Loves Porn Stars. He reached out to the American Bible Society, but they refused to print the Bibles. They said they thought the wording was misleading and inappropriate. Now, I can see where they're coming from, but we have to stop and say, you know, does Jesus love porn stars? And the question is answered, yes, of course he does. Now, we have no problem with the concept of Jesus loves sinners. And if, if Craig Gross had wanted to put this on the Bible, I'm sure there would have been no problem. But when we make it specific, when we really stop and think what it means that Jesus loves sinners, that it means Jesus loves porn stars, Jesus loves child molesters, Jesus loves people who beat their wives. Jesus loves everyone. Then we begin to think, well, wait a minute. Let's not take this too far. But the truth is, and Paul wanted us to know, the grace of God is what justifies us. This is Paul's message. Now, Paul's third shocking revelation is, the cross is not blasphemy, it's not foolishness, but the cross demonstrates God's righteousness. Now, the cross itself was an insult both to Jews and to Greeks. And it's interesting that today, of course, we use the cross as one of the main symbols of Christianity. But it took a while for the cross to really catch on as a symbol. 
In fact, it was probably not until after crucifixion had stopped being a main method of execution before this happened. The Jews were offended at the cross. They considered it uh, an offense because the Old Testament law cursed everyone hung on a tree. In fact, in the second century, the only ones that were, were actually crucified were blasphemers and idolaters. These were considered to be such heinous crimes. And most of the time, the Jewish authorities did not crucify. But if they wanted to show particular contempt after they stoned someone to death, they would crucify the dead body as a means of demonstrating how shameful and loathsome they found this person. So the Jewish people considered the cross to be a curse, and Jewish people were looking for a sign. They felt like a true Messiah would prove his authenticity by doing wonders, by doing miracles. For them, a Messiah on a cross was uh, a contradiction in terms. A crucified God was something that just did not make sense. The Gentiles also considered the sacrifice of a God on a cross to be foolishness. In fact, there's a, a famous drawing called the Alexamenos Graffiti, which was discovered on a Roman wall uh, where you see two men. One has the head of a donkey, and he's crucified on a cross. And the other man is a slave, and he's standing in front of the cross with his face held up in adoration. And the caption of this graffiti, this cartoon, is, Alexamenos worships his God. The idea is it's making a mockery of Christianity that Christians would be so foolish as to worship a man who was hung on a cross. The Romans actually used the cross as an insult. Plautus uh, used go to an evil cross as slang for what we would say when we say go to hell. Cicero writes, the very word cross should be removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, its ears. So, for the Gentiles, a crucified Jesus was a God who did not even have the power to bring himself down from the cross. In fact, Celsus, a Greek philosopher from the second century, called Jesus' death on the cross the most humiliating of circumstances. Now, when the Jewish people saw Paul's writing, their argument was, how could God be righteous if he simply forgave sins, if he wiped them out? When God allowed sinners to go unpublished in the pa unpunished in the past, and when God allows or justifies sinners now, doesn't this show that he's being unrighteous? He's not living up to his own word. He's not keeping his promise to punish the sinner. But Paul's answer is, God's righteousness is actually proven or demonstrated through the death of Christ on the cross. This presentation of Christ as the atoning sacrifice shows that God is just and God is fully authorized to justify us. So Jesus' death actually protects God from this charge of unrighteousness. Somehow, Jesus' death allows God to be righteous while he lets our sins go unpunished. Now, when we look at the word righteous, Righteous is synonymous with justice. It's a description of how God acts. 
Righteousness is the idea of always doing what is right, doing what should be done without partiality or favoritism. Now, God is righteous because his actions are in perfect agreement with his holy nature. Now, we are deemed righteous when our actions match what is right, and what is right is determined by what God has told us. But God, though, is not subject to some kind of moral law outside of himself. We often make the mistake of saying, well, justice requires God to do this or that. A.W. Tozer writes, Justice, when used of God, is the name we give to the way God is, nothing more. When God acts justly, he's not doing so to conform to an independent criterion, but he's simply acting like himself. So, the righteousness of God is the fact that God consistently acts in accordance with his own character. You could think of it as God is always godly. So, God is merciful. God is just. His justice demands that sinners be punished because God promised that they would be and God cannot be a liar. His mercy demands that sinners be shown grace. Both of these are infinite. So, infinite justice, infinite grace, infinite mercy... How is God able to do both? And Paul says this is accomplished through the cross. The cross allows God to deal with sin by sending death and forgiving sin by uh, raising the sinner through Christ. So through Christ, we enter his death and we enter his resurrection. So the cross allows God to be both just and merciful, to judge man for his sin while yet forgiving that sin. Paul's fourth shocking revelation is that this atonement is through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul rejects completely any idea that our justification is through works. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. So, the question is, what is the connection between believing in Jesus, faith in Jesus, and receiving atonement? Why would we need to believe in Jesus? What is so powerful about this? The answer comes in 1 John 4.19, where it is written, We love Him, that is, we love God, because He first loved us. In other words, when we truly recognize the love of God for us, we are somehow empowered to love God in return. Now, we were made to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then, sin happened. Because of sin, our capacity to love is distorted. It's twisted. Because of sin, the only love we are capable of is to love ourselves. But, when we truly understand that God loves us, then something changes inside of us and we are able to begin loving God in return. God's love is given to us and kindles in us a love for Him. To believe in Jesus Christ is to fully grasp what Jesus was doing in His life and death. William Barclay explains it like this. He writes that, Jesus was demonstrating to men the eternal, unchangeable, 
unconquerable love of God. He was demonstrating God as the Father who loves undefeatably, whose desire is for lost sons to come home. When Jesus entered the world, when he healed the sick, comforted the sad, fed the hungry, he was saying to men, God loves you like that. And when Jesus died upon the cross, he was saying, Nothing that men can do to God will ever stop God from loving them. There is no limit to the love of God. The cross is God saying in Jesus, There is no limit beyond which my love will not go. There is no sin which my love cannot forgive. Now, Paul goes on to explain how this belief in Jesus brings about atonement. He writes, Because of the cross, my whole relationship with God is changed. Because of Jesus, I know God is my Father, my friend. I experience the fact I can enter His presence with confidence and boldness. God is no longer my enemy. There's no longer a gulf between Him and me. I am more at home with God than with anyone else. And all of this is because of Jesus Christ. So, to believe in Jesus It's not to understand with our logical, our rational minds. It's not that we learn the facts about Jesus' life and death, uh, that we comprehend these and say, okay, I will admit they are true. Barclay writes of the cross, The work of the cross is not something about which a man must know. It is something which he must experience in his own heart and mind and life. The cross is not so much to be understood as it is to be appropriated. So to believe in Jesus Christ is to fully grasp how Jesus embodies the love of God and then to allow this understanding to shape us, to transform us. Scott McKnight writes, When Paul uses the language of faith, it's not focused so much on correct knowledge as it is about a correct way of looking at reality. Jesus' death on the cross presents us with a new reality for both the Jews and the Gentiles. This reality of a God who loves us and who has freely given us atonement. When we recognize this new reality, then we are able to enter into a new, totally transformed relationship with God. We know that our understanding of reality, the way we perceive reality, shapes us. Satan is described as the father of lies because his weapon against us is deception. Satan keeps us in bondage. He keeps us enslaved because he keeps us trapped in a false reality. He keeps us worshiping and serving the created rather than the creator. We live our lives chasing after God's substitutes because Satan has convinced us these are the things that will bring us what we want. But it's only when we grasp the love of God that we can believe that God provides for us a life far superior to anything that idols can offer. Romans 8.32 reads, He, meaning God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? When we look at the book of Romans, We find a book that's packed with arguments, with logic, with theology. Paul, in fact, is laying out an entire lifetime of learning and thinking about God. And it can be hard for us to follow at times. 
I find it interesting, even the Apostle Peter, he found Paul to be tough going at times. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter writes, There are things in Paul's writing that he found hard to understand. But we miss out on so much of what Paul wants us to understand. If we come away from a study of Romans with our heads crammed full of theology and our hearts left untouched, Paul wants us to know a God who loves us beyond measure, a God who, in the cross, demonstrates his love by giving up his most precious possession, by giving us his only son. William Barclay writes, The cross is not designed to provoke theological disputation, but to provoke adoring love. You know, one of the major misconceptions we have about God today, God the Father is seen as the God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath and judgment and punishment, a God determined to punish us. But somehow, Christ comes forward. Christ is our friend, our advocate. And Christ changes God's mind. Christ gets the Father to ease up on us. Abelard was a philosopher, a theologian from the 12th century church. And he, when he proposed his theory of atonement, he rejected any idea that Christ had come to change God's attitude toward man. He felt there was simply no need for God's attitude to change. Instead, Christ came to show us what God's attitude really was. He writes that Christ died as a supreme exhibition of love. Now, Barclay writes about Abelard saying, Jesus Christ came to proclaim, to demonstrate, to exhibit the love of God, to say in his life and death, God loves you like that. He came to tell men they are sinners, but... They are already forgiven sinners if they will turn to God in response to the love of God. And so this is what Paul wants us to understand when we look at the cross. And I want to close today's lesson with another prayer that Paul prays. And this is one that we find in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses, uh, chapter 3, sorry, verses 16 to 21. Bow your heads with me as we pray this prayer. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.